Good morning. Glad you're here today to worship our Lord. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to 1 John toward the end of the New Testament. 1 John chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 7 to 11. 1 John 2, 7 to 11. Let's ask God to guide us. Father God, thank you for your inspired word, your inerrant word, your word without flaw. Father, we thank you that you have given it to us, that we may know about you, what to believe, how to live. We pray, Father, that you would speak to us through your word. As James warns, we don't want to just hear your word. We want to do your word. We want to live your word. We want to be transformed by it. We know that is a work of your spirit as well as our efforts in order to live out what you have called us to do. Father, we ask that you would transform us, we who know Christ as Savior. And if there's some that may not know Christ, may today be the day that your Spirit draws them. And may they believe in your Son. Guide us today, we ask, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I wonder what comes to your mind when you think of a test. Oh, some of you guys rock it. You are curve breakers. You're at the head of the class. Well done. You're sharp as tacks. There are others, perhaps, that get a little apprehensive when you hear the word test. Tests aren't your forte. And then there is another category that could do well, but kind of shirks, doesn't study, doesn't prepare, but is rather clever. A clever shirker in a test might do something like this. If a prof asks, what is significant about 1896? A clever shirker might say, well, it follows 1895. You can't really argue with that. It's correct, right? But it's not what was looked for. Instead, 1896 is the first year of the modern Olympics in Athens. It's also the incorporation of Utah, the 45th state of our union. Or how about if a professor says, where was the Declaration of Independence signed? A shirker, who is rather clever, might say, at the bottom of the document. <laughs> you can't argue with that. But maybe the prof was looking for Independence Hall, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So two questions given to shirkers. I think they're pretty clever responses, but more likely than not, the professor, she or he, marks them both wrong. Tests can be intimidating. Then there are silly test questions. This faux question may be given to engineering students. You have been given a box with a lot of parts of a high-powered rifle. The directions are in Swahili. You have 10 minutes to assemble the rifle before a Bengal tiger is let into your room and the tiger is hungry. Now, obviously, if that were real, people would really get at it, but that's a faux question. It's a silly question. Then I think of test questions that have a twist to them. Maybe they're 
Those type of questions that we would call trick questions, we don't like those. A question like this, how long is the 100-year war? Well, why wouldn't it be 100 years? But in the 14th and 15th century, it was 116 years off and on when England and France fought in the 100-year war. It doesn't even make sense. Or maybe it's a question something like this. Who are the antagonists in the French and Indian War here on North America? Well, if it's the French and Indian War, we would think France fought some Indian tribes, but the Indians were actually secondary. It was the French fighting the British. It doesn't make sense. Or what about this? The October Revolution, what month did it occur? Well, we know the October Revolution is the Bolshevik Revolution where we brought in socialism and communism in what we call Russia or what used to be called the former Soviet Socialist Republic. When was the October Revolution? It began November 7th. It was a difference in calendars. These type of trick questions cause us to say, you know what, I don't like tests. But today, John gives us a test. He doesn't actually use the word test anywhere in the text. But students, scholars of 1 John, has said that throughout 1 John, the five chapters, John gives us three tests by which you and I should know, should have assurance, should have confidence that we belong or do not belong to Jesus Christ. We've already looked at two of the tests. The first test is the theological test. It's really make or break. The theological test is all over 1 John. Very typical, it's 1 John 5.10. We haven't looked at this verse, but we've looked at this test a number of times. 1 John 5.10 says this. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. The theological test, let's be honest, it is make or break. This is the test in which you and I know, declare, admit, confess that we are sinners. Wrong actions, attitudes, thought, motives, inactivities. We are sinners. Our sin separates us from a holy God. And we will be permanently, eternally separated in a literal hell unless we believe in the Son. God, the second person, Jesus Christ, fully God, took on full humanity, lived a perfect life, and then paid the penalty of sin, which is death. He went to the cross and died for our sin. That if by faith we would believe in him, his death, burial, and resurrection from the grave, we would be given eternal life. The theological test is make and break. If you have not believed in Christ, believe in him today. Receive him as Savior. And if you've believed in him, you have assurance, you have confidence, you belong to the Lord. That's the first test. It's all over First John. The second test is the ethical moral test. This is what we talked about two weeks ago. This is the test that says, if you have believed in Christ, not just parroted a sinner's prayer, but truly believed in Christ over a period of time, there will be transformation, there will be fruit, there will be perseverance. 
We may take three steps forward and two and a half steps back, but over time there will be a trajectory of the fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We'll see incrementally more and more of that as we go on. We saw that particular test in 1 John 2, 4, and 5. Whoever says, I know him, I know Jesus, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. You really don't know him. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps Jesus's words in that person, truly the love of God is perfected, completed, teleos. By this we know, we know that we are in him because we see his fruit empowered by his spirit, encouraged by our effort, and we see incremental steps becoming more like Christ. That's the second test. So we have the theological test, make or break. You believe in Christ as Savior or you don't. The second test, the moral or ethical test, that's the fruit test, the perseverance test. We see incrementally that we are becoming more like Christ. And the third test is the social test. It's the one that's in today's text. I'm just going to read a couple verses. Verses 9 to 11. It says this. 1 John 2, 9 to 11. Whoever says he is in the light, he is in Jesus, and hates his brother is actually still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother, a Christ follower, abides in the light, abides in Jesus. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. This test says that over time, you and I will grow in love for other Christ followers. We're going to slander no more. We're going to be unnecessarily critical no more. We're going to have their best interests at heart. We're going to help them take the next step, her or him, in one's relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the test for today. And theologians have noted these three tests. The theological test, the moral ethical test, and today the social test. Do we evidence love towards the brethren and the cistern which demonstrates that the light of Christ is in us and we are moving from darkness in our world towards light. Well, I want to pick up in our text. I actually want to read verses 7 to 11. Listen to God's word. 1 John 2, verses 7 to 11. Behold, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment, that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light, Jesus, is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light, he is in Jesus, and yet hates his brother, a Christ follower, is actually still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother, abides in the light, abides in Jesus. And in that person, there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother, a Christ follower, is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. It's an interesting text. Now the book of 1 John has 105 verses and 24 times 
we are told to love. And many other times it's alluded to. If we are in the light, if we are in Jesus, if we are coming out of darkness, we will love one another. That's the social test. Are you, am I, are we growing in our love for one another? Now many of you know that in the Greek language, and that's what the New Testament was by and large written in, there are choices when it comes to love. There's phileo and Philadelphia love. That's kind of love for people who are not blood relatives. Then there's storhe love. That's love for people we're related to. There's eros love. That's romantic love between a husband and wife in a marriage relationship. None of those are the words used by John. John uses the word agape love. And we're very familiar in the church with agape, but in the first century, outside of the church, this word was hardly ever used because the standards are too high. This isn't a sugary, sweet type of emotion. Agape love has an emotional side, and we want that. But more than that, it has a commitment side. It's a covenant side. It is possible in a covenant marriage relationship, and that's what marriages ought to be when God joins husband and wife together. It's a covenant. It is possible that you don't even like your spouse all that much all the time, and yet you love the spouse, which means you are committed to the spouse. You have the best desire for the spouse. You're wanting to help the husband or the wife take the next step in their relationship to Jesus Christ. You want to serve one another. You want to care for one another. That is agape love. This is a covenant word. A covenant word. John says that loving others in the church, Christ's followers, is the new commandment. Now it's kind of strange as language, isn't it? John says it's an old commandment. And by the way, it's a new commandment. And it's not an old commandment, but it's a renewed commandment. And we think, what? I mean, John, let's be honest, buddy. If you were in Principles of Writing 101, your freshman year in college, you'd probably fail. It's a new commandment, but it's an old commandment, but it's a renewed commandment. And you say, come on, John, what are you talking about? Well, it is indeed an old commandment. To love one another goes all the way back to the Mosaic Law. Typical is Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So it's, it's an old commandment. But it's also a new commandment. I love how John puts it in John 13, 34 and 35. He says this. A new commandment. That word new is kairos. It's not neos. Neos would mean it's new as in chronologically it's brand new. We haven't had this before. It's not the word John uses. He uses kairos which really means opportunity and what it's talking about here is an intensity. We've always had the command to love but with Jesus he ups the intensity because now the Holy Spirit is in us. And so the intensity and the commitment and the depth of our love for one another, it ought to grow. That's what makes the old commandment a new commandment. 
which is a renewed commandment. A new and a more intense commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, by what? By our love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. That's the commandment. The commandment is old, but it's intensified, and our love for one another needs to grow. Now, hearing this, I think we might say something like this. Okay, I get it. Agape love. I have to have the best interest of fellow Christ followers. I have to help them, spur them on to take the next step in their relationship with Jesus Christ. I've got to stop slandering. I've got to stop gossiping. I've got to get rid of my critical spirit. I need to grow in these areas. That's agape love. But, but I don't like them. Well, you know what? Like is an emotion. Agape love is a commitment. We're actually not commanded to like. We are commanded to love, which always has the best interest of another. Let me give us an example, an illustration. It's not from Christianity. I think of a stalwart from the right and a stalwart from the left. These are two deceased Supreme Court justices. Antonin Scalia, a stalwart from the right, and then Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a stalwart from the left. Now, if you know anything about these individuals, they served on the court for many, many years. They've now left this earth. They both were married for 56 years to different people, of course. They both were committed, faithful spouses. What you may not know about them is they were best of buddies. And as couples, they were best of friends. And after their spouses left the earth, these two Supreme Court justices were continuing, not romantically, but continuing as best of buddies. So the couples, they bought tickets together to the opera. I don't get that. I think you take your enemy to the opera, but they apparently liked the opera, so they went together, the four of them, and enjoyed it. They traveled together. They went on vacation together. For instance, they went to India together and they rode elephants together. And then when their spouses died, especially on special dates or special days, they made special events for one another, not romantically, but because they were buddies. For instance, on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's birthday, Antonin Scalia gave her two dozen red roses. One of his clerks came to him, almost pulling his hair out, and said, what are you doing? You can't agree with this woman at all, and you're giving her roses. And Antonin said, life is not just about votes. She's my friend. Ruth was asked about the relationship, and she said, you know, we both have the highest regard for the Constitution, but we read the Constitution very differently but we both have the same goal. First, we trust one another. And second, when we leave the court, we want to leave the court in as good a shape as when we came. And so these individuals who, to my knowledge, do not profess this agape love, demonstrated agape love. They thought the best. They spurred one another on. Even when they didn't agree with one another, may their tribe increase. 
I want to notice from the text, John gives me two categories. I wish he gave me three. He gives me two categories. Category number one, I walk in the light of Jesus. I walk away from darkness and I treat my fellow Christ follower with grace and kindness. Category number one. Category number two, I don't walk in the light of Jesus. I actually walk in darkness and I show hate to a fellow Christ follower. I wish he had given me category number three. I'll have polite neutrality with you, but I don't agree with you at all. And you may or may not be a Christ follower. I kind of doubt it personally because you're not like me. He gives me two categories. I either treat you with agape love and I'm walking in the light or I treat you with hatred and I'm walking in the darkness. And I think that says implications for how we live. I think I need to ask myself some hard questions. When one of you votes differently than Jesus and I vote, do I still need to treat you with agape love? When one of you has a different view on CV than Jesus and I have, do I still need to treat you with love? When one of you has a different view of executive orders. Our last three presidents have been all over executive orders. I didn't learn it in social school. I, I don't think it's right. I think it circumvents the legislature. I, I can't stand that our governors and our presidents do this. But you don't agree with me? Do I still need to treat you with agape love? What if Jesus and I agree on stimulus checks but you don't agree with us. Do I still need to treat you with agape love? What if we don't agree on the type of worship music or instrumentation or even the Bible version that we use? Do I still need to treat you with agape love? What if? What if you don't agree with Jesus and me that at the trumpet sound, the Lord who is coming, the parousia, will remove his church. Then we will go into Revelation 6 to 18, the tribulation. Then he will bring the church back. Then he will rule bodily on the millennial kingdom, just as scripture says in Revelation 20. What if you don't agree with Jesus and me on that issue? Do I still need to treat you with agape love? The answer, of course, is yes. Yes. Now most of the issues I just mentioned are pretty serious. They're pretty big deal issues. They're not primary issues. They're not salvation issues. But they're big deals. I've got a pretty good opinion on all of them. And, and my way of thinking, Jesus and I agree on every one of them. <laughs> you probably think the same way as well. But even when I'm wrong, or even when I'm right, if it's a professed faith believer, I can voice my opinion. I can persuasively argue for my opinion. I can demonstrate why I think my opinion is right and yours is not. But these are not dividing issues. 
where they shouldn't be, and they certainly shouldn't be militant issues, where with rancor and anger, I unload and unleash on a fellow Christ follower. I think that's what John's saying. Come on, John, are you kidding me? Really? Well, let me read again what he said in John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, an intensified commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, by what? The demonstration of agape love. By agape love lived out in me, others will know that you are my disciple if you have love for one another. In other words, John seems to believe that how I handle these difficult issues that I am really passionate about, most of them, not really passionate about what version of the Bible you use, but I'm passionate about most of these issues, but how I handle them without being wishy-washy, without giving up my convictions, but handling them without militancy and anger and rancor, how I handle them is observed by the world and it impacts my witness. I didn't write those words. John did. And John wrote them to me that I might obey. I think of John's immediate context in 1 John. Heresy is going on. Now we use the word heresy way, way, way too loosely. Heresy actually is about the gospel, salvation by faith and Christ alone being attacked. The other things are important, but they're secondary issues. That doesn't mean they're not ones we shouldn't hold on to with book, chapter, and verse. But heresy actually is about the gospel. And John is actually dealing with heresy. There's a group that has infiltrated the church. We call it proto-insipid at the beginning, Gnosticism. Gnosticism thought that you kind of think your way into heaven. It's a mystery religion. And one of the tenets is that flesh is evil. So if flesh is evil, God in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, did not actually come in the flesh. The word is docetism from the Greek word dokeo. It only seemed, it only appeared that he came in the flesh. No, he didn't come in the flesh because God wouldn't come in the flesh he just was like a good-looking ghost, you know. So he really didn't die in the flesh. That's what Gnosticism taught. And if Jesus didn't come in the flesh, he didn't die in the flesh, and he didn't rise again in the flesh, you and I are lost. We are damned. There is no salvation in Jesus. He physically, bodily died on the cross. He physically, bodily rose from the grave. So John is dealing with heresy. This is a salvation issue. And he's saying to the church, salvation issues, man, there's no wiggle room. Even a lot of secondary issues. Hold them firmly with book, chapter, and verse. But love one another. Demonstrate love for one another. Help people take the next step in their relationship with Jesus Christ in agape love. 
Don't be a slanderer. Don't be a gossip. Don't be a bitter critic. Don't be like that, Jeff. Because the world is watching. And the world will see how you interact with those that you don't agree with. And if they see love, they'll know that you belong to me. And Jesus illustrated this with his life. I think some of the most amazing accounts of Christ are who he spent time with. It boggles my mind. Zacchaeus, are you kidding me? Levi, who became Matthew, the author of the Gospel of Matthew. These guys are traitors. They're Jews who wore Roman uniforms. They're traitors. They collected for Rome against their own people usurious amounts of taxes. I am really patriotic. I grew up in a very patriotic family. When I hear something like Mark Cuban of the Dallas Mavericks saying we're not going to play the national anthem in our games, it just grieves my heart. It grieves my heart and puts fear in my heart for the nation I love. Very patriotic. And I think Jesus was patriotic. And yet he saw people. He saw Zacchaeus and Levi. And he saw their potential. And he gave them a gift, agape love. I think of Mary Magdalene. I mean, she would make even the most immoral cringe, right? Cringe-worthy life. And yet he saw a person, a potential, and he demonstrated agape love. Judas! The betrayer who is in hell. And yet Jesus demonstrated agape love. Well, Jesus hung from the cross. He looked up to heaven and said, Father, forgive them. Those who are gambling for the garments, probably his mother made. That should be on him, but he's been stripped. Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. And Jesus actually ups the ante just a little bit. John says, show this agape love to fellow believers. That's hard, especially if you don't like one another. Somebody has a personality of a toad. Someone's a gossip, a slander, critical, a fool. It's hard to love. And yet Jesus ups the ante not only for believers, but unbelievers. He says this in Matthew 5, 43 and following. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Three tests. The theological test is make or break. You gotta believe in Christ as savior. Don't leave today without knowing Jesus. The moral ethical test. If we truly know Christ, there's going to be fruit. There's going to be perseverance. There's going to be transformation. The fruit of the Spirit is, not should be, might be, could be. It is. Even if it's three steps forward and two steps back, there's got to be fruit. And then the social test. Are we evidencing agape love, not a feeling, a commitment, a covenant? 
Not because we deserve it or someone else deserves it, but because God does. And he calls us to love one another. Not to be wishy-washy, but to be committed to the best in one another. A social test. How are you, how am I, how are we doing with these three tests? Let's pray. Father God, if there's someone today that does not know your son as Savior, I pray that by faith they would believe and receive your son Jesus, asking him to come in to one's heart, to forgive one's soul, to become one's Savior and Lord. And Father, help us all to take the next step in our relationship with Jesus Christ, and the evidence, fruit, and perseverance, and transformation. And Father, with agape love, a commitment, a covenant, empower us by your Spirit to even show love to the unlovely in the church and even outside, that people may know that we belong to you. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.